Hello and welcome. These are some sermons given by Monsignor Rosito from the years 1995 to the year 2016. Enjoy. Today is the fifth Sunday after Easter and the epistle is taken from the letter of St. James. Beloved, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and presently he forgets what kind of man he is. But he who has looked carefully into the perfect law of liberty and has remained in it, not becoming a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, he shall be blessed in his deed. And if anyone thinks himself to be religious, not restraining his tongue, but deceiving his own heart, that man's religion is vain. Religion, pure and undefiled before God the Father, is this, to care for orphans and widows in their tribulation, and to keep oneself unspotted from this world. And the Holy Gospel is taken from the Gospel according to St. John. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, Amen, amen, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto you have not asked anything in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in parables. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in parables, but will speak to you plainly of the Father. In that day you shall ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. <coughs> His disciples said to him, Behold, now thou speakest plainly, and utterest no parable. Now we know that thou knowest all things, and dost not need that anyone should question thee. For this reason, we believe that thou camest forth from God. So far are the words of this day's Holy Gospel. Religion pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their tribulation and to keep oneself unspotted from this world. These are words taken from the epistle of today's Holy Mass in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, we come in our instructions now to two very important commandments of God, the sixth and the ninth commandments, which deal with sex. Now, it's a delicate subject, and I remember when I was a, an assistant in, Santa Cruz, uh, in Salinas, my first assignment, I had a youth group and I was talking about sex, the sixth and ninth commandments, and there were some parents who objected to this being spoken of in a teenage group, even by a priest. And so we discontinued our instructions, but I felt it was a basis, there was a basis of prudery or overreaction to a sensitivity about a very delicate subject that needs to be talked about, needs to be understood, and needs to be practiced with a balance that's neither excessive by being too Victorian or prudish or too open and garish and blasé. We need to keep a middle course. And we start out then with this understanding 
God created the whole process of sex. It's not evil. It's not ugly. It's not sinful. It is to be understood in a proper context of what God has designed and also the added factor that original sin has disturbed this design. So, with this realization that sex is God-created, therefore it has to be good, there are restrictions that have to be placed about it because of the wayward tendency of nature, fallen as it is, to evil, inclination to evil. Uh, some people want to keep it so quiet that nothing is said, but that's only preparing for disaster through ignorance, which will be betrayed and seduced and turned to destruction. We have to have truth, and the whole truth. Now there is the other side of the story where everybody wants to teach little children about sex from kindergarten on. That's going to the other extreme. They're not prepared, they're not ready, and it is out of order to give them knowledge that will rouse their curiosity or lead to experimentation, even innocently, but nevertheless uh, setting up a tendency to disaster. God created male and female. He blessed them. He said, increase and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This is God's way of sharing his power of creation with creatures, with nature in general. Plants reproduce themselves according to their own kind. Animals likewise. So do human beings. And the way that God prepares is through gradual development of a tiny baby to an infant to a child to a teenager to young adulthood to maturity and to old age. So there's a whole sweep during which changes take place. Now children cannot produce children. They're immature. And they do not understand and they're not inclined to anything basically the sexual, except that they are different, not only physically, but mentally, their reactions psychologically are created differently, not to be at odds with one another, but to complement one another. And we have to, because of original sin, guide this process away from the dangers of excesses and destruction to an understanding and a control that leads them in this proper development teaching children as they become aware and ask questions to instruct them, not excessively, but to answer their curiosity at the time and to help them in a context of God's creation, in a context of religion, how beautiful God has made all things. And we can see from the animals, the flowers, the plants, the uh, processes in nature, how God keeps things going. So too with human beings. God keeps things going through um, the holy uh, blessing of man and woman in marriage to raise a family and to not only bring children into existence but to lead them up the levels of spirituality mentally and supernaturally through faith, hope and charity to the ultimate expression of love and productivity to sublimate the lower to higher powers of expression and productivity to be holy in other words. So we're not just animals and we're certainly not angels, but we're human, and we need to grow humanly through the degrees of redemption that pulls us out of a fallen condition of nature to a correct condition of nature that is supplanted by God's grace. 
Now here is a whole key to understanding the supernatural life. Not the spiritual life, which is an intellectual or mental thing, but above that, the supernatural life is being joined to God through Christ. Now because of original sin, man has fallen away from God. God sent a Savior into the darkness of this separation to bring man through the light of Christ back again to the knowledge, love, and service of God. And more than that, and here's what's sometimes missing in Catholic instruction and understanding. It's much more than just being like another religion. It's, just, it's much more than just knowing the truths of the Catholic faith, like looking in the mirror. But to participate in the reality of a union with God through grace in Christ. Now, St. Paul says, we have been grafted onto Christ. And you know what grafting is? A plant that is healthy and strong, producing good fruit, has a companion plant that's wild, producing very little. And the grafter cuts the branch from the wild growth and unites it, plugs it into the tree that will then be the source of life for it, from the root system, through the trunk, through the branches, and then the leafing out according to its nature to the production of fruit. And we were all wild growths, but by baptism have been gathered together into the mystical union of oneness in Christ, each according to his nature producing the fruits of a supernatural kind because from the root which is the Trinity and through Christ's humanity, the trunk, we then are the branches of this body, this family of God. Not indiscriminately, we live in a forest of wild growth, but we have been brought together to the tree of life, which is Christ, and in this we receive through Christ the life of the Trinity, the holiness, the power, the strength, the light of God to give us faith, hope, and charity because of Christ, in, with, and through Christ. Now, unless you understand this, the teachings of our faith are like dark mysteries that we accept but don't understand or don't, how, don't know how to cooperate with. Now, as we go through this simple study, because strangely, uh, Bishop Morrow in this particular lesson reduces the two commandments to just one lesson. Whereas in other commandments, he expands into three or four lessons the content of one particular commandment. So we have a sort of synopsis in this particular uh, gathering together, the Sixth and Ninth Commandment, just one lesson, and we're going to go through it, but try to highlight the important things for understanding so that we won't go to excesses or be ex uh, terribly sensitive about the subject of sex, but to keep a prudence and balance and view of our faith so that we can live properly, unspotted in this world, in the midst of corruption and evil around us, and yet not be touched by it, if we can keep our sights focused on the essence of the fact that we are temples of God. Did you know that? We've said it. You've heard it. Did you walk away and forget it? We bring it back again, especially at this time, because it's in, it's in this context that you understand the sacredness of the human body. Not that it's a design masterpiece of creation, but it's sacred because of the indwelling of God within us by grace. And therefore, the evil of mortals seem to lose that presence of God. And the greatness of God's mercy through forgiveness and confession to bring us back again to that union with God. 
to be a living temple of God once more, damaged but still intact. So let us go through this lesson and uh, see what it tells us as to our obligations with regard to sex, its use, and its non-use, forbidden by God. First of all, what does God forbid in the seventh? Uh, what does God command in the sixth and the ninth commandments? The answer is by the sixth commandment, we are commanded to be pure and modest in our behavior, in our actions. And by the ninth, to be modest and pure in our thoughts. So there's external actions and internal. Just in the seventh command, uh, seventh command, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt even desire to take what doesn't belong to you. That's an interior act. So we have the two commandments in, combined in the one consideration, internal and external actions. We're forbidden to be impure, but are bound to be pure and modest and chaste in behavior and in thought. And here is the quotation from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, who were Greeks. Remember, they were pagans. They were given to excesses of the body's sensuality, along with the Romans. But he tells these converts among the Greeks, Do you not know that your members, that is, the members of your body, are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? He's reminding them, or telling them, this is the mystery of our faith revealed to us that you are not your own. How often we hear, it's my body, I can do with it as I please. Not so. Because of the error, many excesses are committed, even to self-destruction, suicide. Because it's my body and I can do with it as I please. No, it is a temple of God. And you are going to give an accounting of your use of that temple of God. He goes on to say, glorify God and bear him in your body. This simple statement gives a whole aura, a glory, to our understanding of God's creation. He has entered into this fallen condition of ruptured nature and offered it away back to wholeness and completeness by himself dwelling within it. Now, he came to his own, his own received him not. It wasn't just the Jews who rejected him, but those who refuse to accept him remain in that abject state of separation, in the darkness. But to those who received him, he gave the power of becoming sons and daughters of God. This is the positive measure, a message. And we shouldn't just look at it and walk away and forget it, but ponder upon it. Do you not know that you are temples of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you and you are not of your own? You do not belong to yourself only. Beloved, he says, um, St. Peter says, I exhort you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from carnal desires which war against the soul. Does he say carnal desires, period? No. We have sensuality. We love beautiful music. We love to see beautiful things. We love to taste good food. These are carnal desires, but those that war against the soul by taking over and becoming the sole focus of life, materialism, sensuality, pleasure for its own sake, idolatry in general, these are sins. Everything contains a potential for going off track. And we've got to keep it as God designed it, telling us what to do, and then working to do it. Be doers of the word, not hearers only. The sixth and the ninth commandments are studied together because they both deal with commandments about purity. The sixth commandment refers to external acts 
and the ninth to willful thoughts and desires. Notice willful, deliberate. Bad thoughts are only temptations, but when you willfully accept them, they become sins. A bad thought can become an occasion of virtue by rejecting it, and you overcome the temptation and gain merit. How would you gain merit otherwise if you weren't tested? So bad thoughts are not of themselves sinful, but willful bad thoughts are sinful. When I was in the seminary, we would read these words and just <coughs> mull them over, how beautiful these words are from the uh, Book of Wisdom. The quotation is this. Oh, how beautiful is the chaste generation with glory. For the memory thereof is immortal because it is known both with God and with men. And people are chaste and pure. Not prudish, not frightened, but simply living that reality in the presence of God of glorifying him in our bodies and in the bodies of each other. There is a waywardness we must avoid. And it's difficult because of this inclination to evil. And that is why we're delicate about exposing the knowledge of sex unduly to those who are not yet ready or prepared so that with the proper knowledge they will grow with the respect, knowledge, and caution not to fall into the traps of ignorance and innocence that sometimes uh, can be seduced so easily. St. Paul tells the St. Corinthians, the body is not for immorality. How many people want to make life a big picnic? No pain, no suffering, no challenge, just, just enjoyment 100%. Well, that's an illusion, certainly, to begin with, and it's far from the truth, because the body is not made for enjoyment only, but for the service of God, who rewards you with enjoyment. When you do things proper, properly, there's health, there's productivity, there's a wholesomeness, there is a gladness when you're healthy, mind, body, and soul. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He created this masterpiece. It's a beautiful thing. Imagine when he restores it, how much more glorious and beautiful it's going to be for those who have earned the rewards of his greater glory in eternity. God has always shown special love for those whose chastity is outstanding. How many saints there are? They seem to be unreal in a way, but they had the same kind of problems, and they also had the same kind of help available, which they used. Helped by their parents, no doubt, but by the development of virtue from stage to stage in their growth to maturity and holiness and sanctification. Consider how he chose that purest of all mortals, the Blessed Virgin, as his mother. Our Lord chose St. John, the virgin apostle, as the beloved disciple. It was John who was privileged to lean on his heart at the Last Supper. It was to him that Christ entrusted his mother. What does the Sixth Commandment forbid? The Sixth Commandment forbids all impurity and immodesty in words, looks, and actions, whether alone or with others. Does God give us a power and say not use it? He says, you have a power that you must come to understand, recognize, and in his own time, having taken the responsibilities 
of sharing with me the power of creation to enjoy the privileges, therefore, that associate with this obligation. And God knows that he's not going to teach each one one-on-one, -on -one, but it's through the whole process of creation and development that we come to understand the do's and the don'ts, the, what is permitted and what's not permitted, so that with this faith and hope and charity we will live according to this divine plan and do the work of God and continue the work of creation. God has designed this for man throughout history. And it's a powerful urge he gives that he also says to learn to control. Now, because of original sin, which we can never forget about, we have a tendency to evil, to excesses, to the immediate. I want to hear it now, like children. They don't want to wait till tomorrow. Now is when they want it, and now they want to have it. And some never grow out of this as they get older. They still want it now rather than postponing to later what their duties and obligations, then will give them the privilege to also enjoy as well at that time. God has come with Christ as the stake that is the standard, straight and true and strong. And we who are inclined to evil need to be tied to that stake. It's a restraint. We do that in... Um, our gardens, rather than have a plant fall all over the ground, we tie it up. Or we have a tree that is bent, we want to straighten it out, and it's hard on the tree. It, uh, it's painful, you might say, to be stressed to a pole, which in time it begins to grow along and then no longer needs a restraint because it has now straightened its growth pattern along the lines of that model, which is Christ. So we are tied to Christ. We grow away from evil, which is painful, to a standard of goodness, which is productive and upright and holy, and that is Christ. Now, the first stage of the spiritual life we call purgative, painful, because we're giving up all these attractions that are right here and now, looking so pleasant, promising so much, and giving so little disappointment after disappointment, yet in the darkness we still reach after these things that are going to leave us hungry and empty. And we give those things up, hopefully for faith, uh, because of restraints helped by our parents to reject. But the second stage then comes after a continuity and control because of Christ and our faith in Christ, we begin to grow. Christ-like, like Christ in an upright position, then the restraints are no longer necessary. Then we begin to produce and flourish. That's the second stage called the illuminative stage, when we begin to be attracted to the things of God. First, you didn't see them, and it was hard to try to live accordingly. It was like a pilot just lying in the fog. He's got to rely on his instruments. That's the only thing that's going to save him, because he wouldn't know up, or f up from down, left from right. And we who fly in this fog of darkness called the spiritual night, night of the senses, the night of the soul, we follow the directions of our faith and we come out and we are safe. When we come out of this darkness, we begin to emerge into the light, the illumination of God and the understanding of the things of God. And we begin to get hungry for these things and we want to read and we want to talk about these things. There is a, a, an elevation, a joy, a pleasure, an energy. Beyond that, there's a third stage when God himself takes over and he leads. 
call this the unitive state. Now, this is the way God has called us out of darkness in Christ. We have to give up. We will also exchange for getting something in place in turn. And it begins to turn around. And only when you have experienced this change do you know really what it's all about. You can hear about it. You can read about it. You can talk about it. But one who has experienced it knows what it really is to change. A criminal was converted. A sinner who no longer sins but lives a holy life. St. Mary Magdalene, for example. St. Augustine, whose mother's feast we're celebrating today, also St. Monica. So what is it then that the spiritual life is all about, that the church should teach us, that you should see it here, understand, and participate in, so that you become illuminated and attractive and united with God, and there is no problem with bringing forth fruit of virtue. It comes from God and his power, but you have to cooperate. Difficult at first, but by gradual degrees, easier and easier, until God himself possesses us and takes hold and does things in spite of us or through us because of his presence and power. So he is in us, and we are the temples of God, if we truly develop and grow through all the stages to the fullness of holiness that the church teaches us in keeping the commandments to find. So the sixth commandment forbids all impurity and immodesty in looks, words, actions, whether alone or with others. Now, to distinguish between virtue of purity and modesty, let us say that purity regulates the expression of the rights of the married and excludes them outside the married state. So you can't say, well, he says you can't commit adultery. Then anything else is permitted. No, it excludes any such deviations from marital rights outside of marriage as well. Within marriage, according to propriety as well not to practice artificial contraception, to enjoy pleasure without the responsibilities, but to be open, if God wills, to allow life to be created through this gift of matrimony. While modesty is the form of temperance, which inclines one to refrain from what may lead to unlawful pleasure. You might say it's like a fence. It keeps you outside of the sin of impurity. And if you climb that fence, even though you haven't jumped into impurity proper, you are putting yourself in danger unnecessarily. Modesty protects purity. The purity is the rejection of anything that is not permitted by this commandment that God has made clear to us. The church teaches us the details. So while this lesson is very singular and simple, there are many more things that we should talk about and consider, but that's for another time and another place. Next year we'll be talking the encyclical for the instructions after Mass for those who can attend on the encyclical of Christian education, which goes into sex education, coming right from the Pope himself and teaching us how to teach. The co this commandment forbids adultery, which is the unfaithfulness of a married person. Remember, when you marry, you join by God to each other in one. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And that joining is the union in the marriage rites that are exclusive and perpetual till death do them part. So there's a matter of a contract. And God has joined that contract. No one can break that contract since it's made by God himself. It is a duty before God and men for married people to be true to each other. Adultery is a great evil which breaks up the harmony of the family and brings punishments in this life and in the next. 
America is cursed with divorce and the problems that come without uh, parents to guide children un with faith. And we see how godless, this proliferation of godlessness continues because of the breaking of these commandments, especially the breaking of family life under God. Adultery is a sin not only against chastity, but also against justice because it is injustice towards the spouse of the married person. In the old law, the adulterer was punished with death. Remember when the woman was caught in the adultery, brought to Christ, and they asked, what do you say, say about this situation? And our Lord says, well, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. And all the sinners left. And there was only the woman in Christ. But he did tell her, go and sin no more. But he did not condemn her. But death was the penalty for adultery. And in fact, in mid-eastern countries, Anyone who is caught stealing has his hand chopped off. Sure way not to steal again. And believe me, they may commit other sins, but thievery or stealing is not one of them. And it's very effective. So if a person is put to death for adultery, you can be sure that it's going to be a very great deterrent upon adultery. For God will judge the immoral and adulterer, St. Paul says. Married people should be most careful in avoiding even the appearance of unfaithfulness. When the spirit of jealousy enters, conjugal happiness goes out, or any other example besides jealousy. Matrimony is a holy state. It's not left over. Well, I don't want to be a priest, and I can't be a nun, or whatever the reason, so I think I'll just get married. No, no. Marriage is a vocation. It's positive. It's a holy state. And in it, the couple make each other greater, pass, uh, uh, more greatly capable of sanctifying each other. Each supplies what the other doesn't have. In a complement, they build up together, sharing their duties and responsibilities in a complementary way under God's grace to be productive of holiness and goodness for themselves and for their children. Almighty God intends the propagation of the race through matrimony. How we're here, God made it so. And that's how it's going to continue. But there can be abuses and sins and consequent disasters as a result of breaking these laws of purity. Actions in accordance with this purpose of matrimony are permitted to the married, but positively forbidden for the unmarried. Fornication, sins among, between unmarried people, is at all times a grave sin just as is adultery, all times. No matter what you're taught, no matter what you may think, it is a serious, serious sin. Now, we're not saying it's the greatest sin, but it is serious and so easily committed and made light of that it leads people thinking that it's perfectly all right in certain cases, as long as you're committed and do love one another with emotional love, not the love of God necessarily and is justified under that title. And teachers in school do not interfere with children. They have a right to do as they please. They're taught to practice birth control or artificial contraception. And so the proliferation of evil goes on because of ignoring the basic responsibilities that should be taught to children, even by those in school. By the married is meant those Catholics validly married in the Catholic Church. 
Catholics who marry before a justice of the peace or a non-Catholic minister cannot live together as married people because they are not married either in the eyes of the church or before God. The church is made to seem like a tyrant. But we're looking at things as God looks at them and we enforce the laws of God as far as we can. We uphold them certainly. And what about your relatives, friends, or maybe your own condition? If you are not married validly in the church, it creates a lot of hard feelings. And it's a difficult decision and determination how to react to this situation with others. Do we reject them? Well, that would be uncharitable. Do we accept them? That would be scandalous. So it's difficult not to create hard feelings and yet uphold the law of God. If those Catholics who are not married before a Catholic priest live together and have children, these are considered illegitimate. Say, so, well, that's cruel. That's hard for the child. Now, who produced that situation? And are so registered at baptism as illegitimate children. And it would be an impediment to the priesthood, for example, to be uh, irregular in this way. So consequences then have to be considered in the matter of valid marriages. So again, uh, to um, used to be taken very seriously when I was a child. You know, it was looked down upon to be divorced or to be living with somebody that you're not married to. It was looked down upon and used as a sort of norm for society. Now, how seriously is it taken? It's taken as acceptable. And it creates many hard feelings, not to give approval, but to what degree? And this is the delicate balance of your decisions that you have to make sometimes with the circumstances that differ from case to case in your own relatives or relationships with others. All impure and immodest actions, whether committed alone or with others, are forbidden. Is God playing games? No, he's telling you the truth, but because of original sin, you have to work hard to keep this. But this is a proof of your love. It's not hard if you love somebody to make a sacrifice. Mothers do it for their children, parents, uh, husbands do it for their wives, and vice versa. If there's real love, the sacrifice is rather small. And if we love God, we make the sacrifice, in spite of original sin, to be pure, to avoid occasions of sin, to overcome these wayward tendencies that brings the grace and power of God to help us when we have passed the test, to fight that temptation successfully, and it gets easier to fight each time we're more successful. When impurity is deliberately committed, deliberately committed it is always a mortal sin. That's a teaching of the church. But that's a teaching of God because the church can't teach what other, otherwise than what God teaches. So it's not being a tyrant or making it hard. It's a reality and a truth that leads to a holiness because then subli uh, sublimating these powers, a powerful mainspring in life, the sexual drive, finds outlets in higher elevations of construction, of uh, poetry, of literature, of music, of art, of all of these outlets that come from this real mainstream uh, spring that is uh, generating all this activity. If it's wasted, then nothing comes but destruction. But if it's directed, powerful things come. 
The gravity of the sin of immodesty varies according to its nature, the conditions, and the relationship of the persons committing it. That's why we need to go into moral theology more deeply than this particular lesson does. A good rule would be to refrain from doing anything you would be ashamed to have your mother or your spouse know about. If you'd be ashamed of it, then it's bad news. What are the most common occasions of the sins against chastity? Idleness, bad companions, too free companionship with the other sex, immor immoral books, magazines, and so on, indecent shows and pictures and games, immoral dances, and immodesty and excessive luxury in dress. So let's go through these real quickly. Idleness. This is the parent of sin. And we are so blessed with material benefits in this country that we have lots of time on our hands. We're not working hard like peons at agriculture in the forest somewhere in the um, depths of uh, the wilds like people used to live. But we have everything at the grocery store and everything uh, provided through the magazines and uh, catalogs. And we've got lots of time on our hands. And what use is made of that extra time? To pray, to study, to learn, to do works of charity? Unfortunately, not always. Man is like the earth. If it is not planted to good seed, weeds grow on it fast. Let a field grow idle for a while. What grows there but weeds upon weeds? So a person is beset by all kinds of evil temptations unless he has some worthwhile occupation. And sometimes it's good to be poor. You have to work so hard, you don't have time for sin. Well, that's one way of getting around sin. Not necessarily the best, but it does work. But if you do have time, be careful that you employ it well, with faith guiding your reason. Second, bad companions in conversation, especially for the young people. Um, when you grow from infancy through childhood to, adult, uh, to uh, teenage years, you're really unprepared unless you've been trained, unless you have been made aware of the inherent dangers, because most young people are innocent. They think they can do anything, they can go anywhere, because they have this strength that they didn't have as children. Now there's a burgeoning of puberty and power and freedom that's an unhealthy, explosive mixture unless it's controlled and contained. Bad companions can be like a spark that explodes the dangerous atmosphere of volatile fumes. Bad companions are the cause of the fall into impurity of numberless young people. They're drawn into it innocently sometimes, sometimes out of curiosity or a spirit of bravado, but the damage is done. It's like dope. Now we hear about the dope, how powerful it must be to addict people that become slaves to it. We hear about it. Do we partake of it to see what it's like? No, we stay away from it. We know it's bad news, but if curiosity takes hold, you might become victimized by this knowledge. So we use the knowledge to keep away from it, not to learn how to become part of it. We should carefully avoid persons whose conversation is unchaste. They think these things, and they speak these things, and they do these things, and birds of a feather flock together, and so you're going to be drawn in if you engage in the conversations, and the loud is really a lot of hot air, but still making its, taking its toll. Those who take pleasure in listening to improper conversations run a serious risk of falling into sins of impurity. So young people, you have a lot to learn. These powers that God gives you, now generated, 
and not to be taken lightly, but with the care and restraint and caution that your parents will give you and elders who are interested in you so that you will learn to know yourself better and not take unnecessary chances that will lead to some unhappy experiences if somebody had only told me or if I'd only listened better. Too frequent companionship with the other sex. Undue familiarity between opposite sexes inflames the passions. Not always, but occasionally it's enough to get things started. Just as straw blazes up when brought near the fire. You know that you can hold a flame near a straw and it will burst into flame even though there's no direct contact. Girls and young women certainly know that if they want to be respected, they must respect themselves and not permit men to be caressing them at all times. You know how playful it gets to be, but if you have self-respect, modesty will give you a touch-me-not attitude uh, that will avoid any dangerous occasions then of going beyond merely caressing. And remember, girls love to give pleasure by pleasing men. They do things for them. Uh, men are more carnal. They're more direct. They want to take and exploit sometimes unless they learn self-control and have a high regard for women that they would never permit themselves to do anything out of order. But women do not have the same attraction in the relationship as men do. And sometimes girls not knowing this will innocently inflame the passions of a young man because of the way she dresses or the way she acts innocently but sometimes dangerously to her own destruction or a sad experience for both of them. So girls, be modest and listen to what you're told. Men are not feeling things like you are. And boys, remember that girls are not thinking like you are. They can be exploited. They can be seduced. But be careful that you're going to destroy yourself in the process as well as her. A kiss is a demonstration of affection and there is nothing intrinsically wrong with it. But it becomes sinful when used in such a manner as to provoke the passions. French kissing and all excessive kissing and emotions, pretty soon both are out of control. And they do things they would not have done had they not begun kissing, at least excessively. This is, the true, this is true also of other demonstrations like embracing and so on. Be careful. Keep a little space. Undue familiarity rubs off the delicacy from girls and the protective and gallant instinct from boys. A beautiful girl, a noble girl, is almost honored and venerated by a decent boy. And she has great power, therefore, not by surrendering it, but by preserving it. Fourth, immoral books, magazines, and newspapers, they are prolific in our country. Many are the attractive garb, but they enkindle the passions and do harm. Advertising, you know, you've been exposed to it. Keep your eyes modest. Turn it away, turn it off, get out of the situation. Fifth, indecent shows, movies, TV, um, videos, pictures, games, bad shows, whether on the stage or on the films, in the films, corrupt more subtly than immoral conversation because what one sees leaves a stronger impression. Moreover, bad shows represent evil in attractive garb. They don't produce something ugly unless the persons involved are inverted. Then they see ugly as beautiful. 
Now, it's a strange inversion, but it does happen. And we get ugly music, ugly art, ugly uh, attire, uh, slovenly, ugly dressed, dirty, uh, unkempt, garbage filled. We see this, and people love it because they're turned to ugliness as beauty. We don't want to get lost in that garbage. Immoral dances. In itself, dancing is not re a reprehensible practice. David danced before the tabernacle in the Old Testament of God. Um, dancing is forbidden by certain religions altogether. Well, we don't want to go to excesses because when the pendulum swings back, it goes to the opposite extreme again. Corruption of the best becomes the worst. So we want to keep it proper. It's not immoral to dance, but it is the manner that should be carefully guarded against. Immoral dancing, you slip over into very easily uh, uh, in unguarded moments. At bad dances, there are often women present who are very modestly dressed. Again, it could be innocent, but it still takes its toll. And it's in these environments that you'll find more of this going on. There is a further danger of excessive drinking. So the loosening of inhibitions begins to proliferate and things happen that after a while desensitized to them become normal. Quotation marks. A modern curse associated with bad dancing is the fad of boys and girls going out alone in cars and driving to these situations. Well, I'm only going to visit my friend or we're just going to go down for a milkshake or something and then it goes beyond that. Be careful not to lie, not to uh, cut the corners. Your parents want to protect you and takes just one experience that's out of order to create disaster. So be careful what you do with your freedom. Finally, immodesty and excessive luxury in dress. A beautifully dressed girl is pleasing to look at, but the art of looking nice should not be indulged into excess. Anything to excess is driven by some demon. Remember, that's a pretty good rule. Women whose aims at life is to deck themselves out in order to attract the attention of men are putting themselves in the way of unchastity, not for themselves, certainly for others who will see and imitate them. So uh, what is it that we need to remember that will help us so much? Our faith. Don't just hear it and forget it, but ponder upon it and apply it so that you will then be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. And we are temples of God. And if we'd meditate upon that a little bit more often, we'd have greater respect for ourselves.